Well, I believe I'm going to have to update my resume um, because I have uh, preached in 28 states, Puerto Rico, the District of Columbia, and 48 foreign countries. Um, It's exciting. I love and appreciate all of those guys back there that help so much uh, in providing our live stream and encourage all of those who are watching from wherever you might be. I'm not sure exactly what the uh, uh, typical Sunday is, but we still have a lot of sites each Sunday and, of course, likely multiple people at those different sites that are watching online. And and what a great blessing, Terry. Great job. And Eric Mosley, great job putting that together. And John and all of the ones that work in that wonderful ministry, uh, we are blessed because of you. And our church family's borders are extended because of you. And it is, it has been an incredible blessing since 2016 and especially over these last uh, few years. Um, Throughout the last 2,000 years, people of faith in Christ have gathered together to partake of the Lord's Supper. Michael alluded to the fact that in my doctor ministry work at Abilene Christian University years ago, I did a project thesis on developing a theology of the Lord's Supper. And this month, we happen to be looking uh, at the Lord's Supper each week, uh, four sermons on the Lord's Supper. This past week, we looked at the Scripture and the biblical foundation. Uh, Next week, we'll look at the hope on Easter Sunday. I hope you'll invite someone to come with you because we will see that wonderful forward-looking aspect of the Lord's Supper, uh, proclaiming His death until He comes, as 1 Corinthians 11 says. The last week will be a little bit more focused on the 11th chapter of 1 Corinthians and draw some conclusions and specific applications from this study. But today is, uh, is the historical study. We're looking at the church's family meal, the Lord's Supper, and today specifically talking about the history. And of course, that history begins in our New Testament. And it begins in Acts chapter 2, as we saw last week when the disciples began to meet and they were committed to the apostles' teaching and doctrine. They were committed to their fellowship with each other. They were committed to prayer, but they were also committed to the breaking of bread. And that term, as we saw last week, can refer to sharing a meal together, but it can also refer specifically to the Lord's Supper. And so from the very earliest time the church existed, the church began to meet and remember the Lord's death, burial, and resurrection in the, last, in the Lord's Supper that he instituted. In Acts chapter 20 is another example of that. Paul is on uh, his third mission journey. He's kind of working his way back to Antioch of Syria. Ultimately, he gets arrested uh, in Jerusalem and taken to uh, Rome as he appeals to the emperor. But in uh, chapter 20, verse 7, he finds himself in Troas uh, on the far northwestern part of modern-day Turkey. And Luke records this. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people and, because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. Well, I'm not going to try to push that kept on talking till midnight part, but I will tell you if you keep reading, a couple of things happen. Number one, a guy falls asleep during the sermon, falls out of the window, and is killed. Secondly, Paul, out of a great, incredible act of mercy, very rare among any other preacher, heals him and raises him from the dead. 
The rest of us would say, finally, someone got what they deserved for falling asleep during a sermon. Paul doesn't feel that way at all uh, and raises Eutychus from the dead. But then they also share a meal together. And Paul keeps talking. And if you read Acts 20 closely in that passage, he doesn't just preach till midnight. He actually talks until the sun rises the next morning. That's how important it was for him to share that time with the church. And he had much to share indeed. We see other examples of them partaking of the Lord's Supper. Of course, 1 Corinthians 11, uh, that mentions it. 1 Corinthians 16 talks about what we just did and prayed over our contributions, being willing to share and to give of our means. And so this time in Acts chapter 20, verse 7, in spite of the fact that he was on a trip, in spite of the fact that he was away from his home church, his sponsoring congregation, Antioch of Syria, um, they found where the church met. And they met with those disciples in the city of Troas. And they gathered together to break bread. The purpose of their gathering together as the church was to partake of the Lord's Supper. The purpose of our gathering together as a church is to partake of the Lord's Supper. And we sing wonderful praises to God as we've done today. We offer prayers to God. We give of our means. We hear messages from the word of God. We're reminded of each other's needs and concerns. But we specifically meet together to partake of the Lord's Supper. And the historical study brings that out. I hope that you'll appreciate these things that I'm sharing. I'll be doing more reading than I typically do, but that's the nature of this lesson. And if you want to uh, receive a, a hard copy of the lesson, I'll be glad to email that to you if you just want to let me know or make a copy of it for you. And so before we get in to that specific study, let's ask the question, why? Why are we going to do this? Why study the history of the church? Well, there's a, a couple of passages in Scripture in 1 Corinthians 10, also in Romans chapter 15, where Paul acknowledges that history has value. Even biblical history certainly has value. We read examples of how to act or how not to act. Those of you that are following along in the daily Bible reading, you know that there's a lot of examples in Scripture about what's not the right thing to do. Uh, and we're blessed by that. Uh, Paul tells the Romans through the endurance and encouragement of the scriptures, we can have hope. And that is absolutely true. And though his, history is not inspired or authoritative, let's clear that right out from the start. And I'll say it again later. Our inspired authority is the word of God and that's it, our scripture. But history can help us understand that. And interacting with members, people of faith through the centuries, 2,000 years since Jesus established his church, we can, it can help us today. And we can certainly see that in the discussion that follows. Scripture uses a, free, a few significant terms in describing the Lord's Supper. One of them is the Lord's Supper. Paul uses that term in 1 Corinthians 11, and it helps us to remember the meal aspect. We talked about that last week. This is actual bread that you eat. It's actual fruit of the vine that you drink. Uh, the Lord's Supper, that term helps us to remember that and to remember the last supper that Jesus shared with his disciples before he died. Another term is found in 1 Corinthians 10, and it is the term communion. 
It's the term communion. It is the Greek term koinonia. And many of you know what that means. That term is typically translated fellowship. Fellowship. In 1 Corinthians 10, some translations say communion. Some translations say participation. Drinking of that cup is a participation in the blood of Christ. Eating that bread is a participation, a fellowship, a communion in the body of Jesus broken on the cross. As Wade was sharing about the encouragement that we need, and I hope that you'll get one of those blue cards right in front of you and and fill it out and, and write it out and leave it on the pew or put it in the box behind us because we need this fellowship aspect, this communion aspect, because we need to encourage each other. Uh, Those that have special needs, such as you see on the prayer list and that have been announced, others that you just know as Wade shared. Um, Such an important thing, and it's also such an important part of the communion, the Lord's Supper. A third term is the term Eucharist, and it is exactly the term that is used in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24. It's also used in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's Uh, passages that refer to that last supper that Jesus uh, shared with his disciples. The term Eucharist is a transliteration of the Greek word Eucharistia, and it means thanksgiving or giving thanks. Our term deacon is a transliteration of the term diakonos, which means to serve or a servant. Well, the term Eucharist is the same way. As Paul was talking in 1 Corinthians 11, as Matthew, Mark, and Luke record Jesus saying, when he took the bread and he gave thanks, and he took the cup and he gave thanks. It was a giving of thanks. That is the term Eucharist. During the second century, this word was used as a noun, and it became the general name the church typically used for the whole service of the Lord's Supper. The term Eucharist draws us to consider this great history of the Lord's Supper through the centuries. You know, as we look at history and as we consider that, we mentioned last week that if you're reading from Luke 22 about the the Lord's Supper and you take uh, Jesus' words, we're reminded, as, as we saw last week, that he starts with the cup and then he does the bread and then he does another cup. And without an awareness of history, then we're not sure exactly what he's doing and why. And if we're supposed to do that too, because that's how it was in Luke 22. But when we study a little bit of history, then we see starting around the time of Ezra, around 500 or so BC, the uh, Jews began to use four and sometimes five cups as they uh, celebrated the Passover that Jesus was celebrating with his disciples. Uh, Many religious groups today have discounted the important contribution of the historical church and its experiences. One writer talks about an anti-historical bias that has led to a prideful rejection of the past. Another calls on Christians to recover what has historically been the center of Christian identity, the death and resurrection of Christ. A historical study of the Lord's Supper helps us to be reminded of that. And of course, churches of Christ and the restoration movement from which we come are not exempt from trying to deny our history. In fact, we're probably some of the worst about that. For example, two Bible uh, faculty members at a Christian college uh, wrote about a situation where a young man came into their restoration history course 
And he said this, I don't care what Barton Stone or Alexander Campbell said. All I care about is what the Bible says. And they write and they say, well, we thought about several things that we could respond with. But here's what we said. At least one reason you care only for what the Bible says is that Barton Stone and Alexander Campbell influenced you. And that is the truth. I would add Martin Luther to that list, as you'll see as well. Well, they continue to talk about that, and they ask, do we have a history after Pentecost? Honesty requires that we answer yes. The whole history of the church, as messy and fallen as it has been, is in some sense our history. Although we want to be like the early church, we must admit that we are not the first Christians. 2,000 years have passed. Previous generations have passed the faith on to us. We would not even have our Bible were it not for the faithful labors of copyists and translators who lived long after Pentecost. You've heard me say before, I do not believe that we are the first century church. We are the 21st century church. We are the 21st century church trying to live according to the teachings that were given in the first century that are the inspired and authoritative word of God. But we are the 21st century church in Tyler, Texas. Another Church of Christ author says that sometimes we in the churches of Christ want to claim the Bible alone as a source of faith, but it must be said emphatically that all congregations are a part of some historic tradition. We did not just arrive on the scene in a DeLorean, come out, and all of a sudden we're here and have no past, no history, no experience to draw from. Thankfully, actually, that's not true. That's not true. And we can acknowledge that without condoning everything that history includes. And we see this same tension in the current political climate of our day in this country, do we not? As we seek to acknowledge our history and its frailties without falling into the extremes of glorifying it on the one hand or erasing it on the other. We're having a hard time figuring out how to do that. As we recognize that the leaders of the past were fallen leaders and were imperfect individuals, and yet trying to honor them and honor that history and acknowledge it in a way that does not glorify it or justify it. That's a hard thing to do. It's a hard thing to do in the church as well. And there are some churches that would even try to change the name. (laughs) Church of Christ has too much baggage, they might say. Let's take that name off. Let's just call it something else. And I, I understand that concern. I do, I do, because there's a great concern about reaching out to people today and and trying to ditch that baggage that we don't necessarily need so that we don't lose the conversation from the start. I understand that, but I also understand that we can't change our name just simply for the purpose of jettisoning our history and pretending that it never happened. (laughs) We can't do that. For example, my name is William Harold Allen, Jr., You will hardly ever hear me announce my middle name, but there it is on tape. There you go. I am Junior. And when I think of being named, William Allen is actually a a family name. There are lots of Williams in the Allen family. Some are living, a lot are gone. Um, We have our roots, as I have found through Ancestry.com in England and Ireland and Scotland. And so I'm thinking that I must be related to the future king of England. Because I'm from England, he's from England, 
His name is William. My name is William. I'm figuring that must be the case. I don't know why. Well, as I look at my dad, I see a, an imperfect man. He was a good man. He was president of the PTA when I was in eighth grade. He helped me in Little League. Um, he had a job, and he provided for our family. But I also see a man that was fallen. As you have heard me say, he was an alcoholic and threatened our family at times and ultimately divorced my mother. And if I look at my genogram, if I look at my family history on both my mother and my father's side, there are many examples of two things. One is divorce and one is alcoholism. (laughs) And so what do I do? I could change my name. I could do that. But guess what? That doesn't change my history. It doesn't change those experiences. It doesn't change the good things or the bad things. Or I can keep my name and just acknowledge that history and try to learn from it. I think that's a much better approach. Refusing to consider a historical study of the church enables the false belief that somehow or another we stand above history as if it has no effect on us. We deny our own humanity when we do that, our own limitations. The problem with this attitude is that the rejection of historical perspective imprisons a movement within its present culture today. If we don't take a look at that history and try to learn from it and acknowledge the problems and uh, acknowledge the victories, then all we have to go by is today and how to apply the Bible. And that's really not enough. An understanding and appreciation of our history can help us respond to today's issues actually in a more balanced and biblical way. Sometimes I wonder if the reason we refuse to engage in a historical study is because we're insecure about doing that. We don't want to put our beliefs to that test. We just want to believe what we believe and react to the situation today and not put it up against the lens of how People for 2,000 years have faced many of the same things that we do in different ways and in different places. It can help us be more biblical, not less. Truly, there is much we can learn from church history and how those who claim to believe in the Bible and follow Jesus Christ acted in their day and responded to the issues and crises they faced. And it's with this same hope and this same purpose that we briefly (laughs) examine the history of the church's observance of the Lord's Supper. Well, separated into three parts. The first is the ancient church. The ancient church was around from A.D. 100 to 500 for our purposes today. And the church in the ancient times, in those first uh, several centuries, went from being persecuted to being accepted to being in power. That was the transition we see during this time. And the church, as I said earlier, ultimately starting in the second century... Uh, used the term Eucharist to describe the Lord's Supper uh, almost universally. In the years before Constantine, the church suffered great persecution. It was illegal. You could lose your life because you went to church, claimed Jesus as your Lord, or partook of the Lord's Supper. And yet they did that the best they could. One writer, a historical writer, says the Lord's Supper was virtually universally observed in those first centuries. 
One of the early documents is the Didache, originating around A.D. 100. And it speaks of the Eucharistic service and clearly indicates that it was observed every week. About the middle of the second century, Justin writes his first apology and gives a relatively full description of how the Lord's Supper was celebrated in the A.D. 100s. These early documents indicate that the Christians brought the elements for the Eucharistic service and were led by a president, not an office, but simply one who presides at the service, just as Michael did for us today. William Willimon notes that as yet there seems to be no status distinction between kleros and laos, between no, meaning no clergy laity difference. You don't see that in those first several centuries. A study of history brings that out. The service begins with a reading from the apostles or prophets, followed by a sermon. Prayers are offered, and the bread and wine mixed with water are distributed by the deacons to those present and then to those absent, including widows and orphans. During the second century, the overall meal and the Lord's Supper observance were separated from one another and became two distinct occasions. We spoke about this a little bit last week uh, from Scripture passages that talk about that love feast, the agape. And we saw problems over that in 1 Corinthians 11, and we see that example being given in Acts 2 and in Acts 20. And ultimately, that meal left and the Lord's Supper stayed. What is important, one writer says, is that right through the New Testament period and beyond, Christians met together to hold common meals that were more than a token reception of bread and wine. The evidence of the separation is quite clear by the middle of the third century. So by around 250, you see the Lord's Supper, not in the context of a full meal. The apostolic tradition of Hippolytus, written around AD 220, gives a complete Eucharistic prayer, starting with an introductory dialogue between the leader and the people. Next comes a prayer of thanksgiving or the Eucharistic prayer, consisting of several parts. The thanksgiving praises God for his wonderful acts, and then references made to Jesus' words of institution when Jesus took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to them. This is followed by the anamnesis, that special remembrance, not just remembering mentally, but actually going through it yourself as if it's happening today in the present, followed by an invocation of the Holy Spirit and then ending with a word of praise. This ancient church before the Council of Nicaea in A.D. 325, when Christianity was uh, allowed in the days of Constantine, it challenges us because of their devotion and the faithfulness that they gave to remembering the Lord through the Eucharistic observance in the face of great persecution. Some of those chose taking communion over life itself. One writer says this, It was to secure the fullness of this corporate action that a presbyter or elder and a deacon had to be smuggled somehow into the imperial prisons, there to celebrate their last Eucharist for the confessors awaiting execution. Cyprian takes it as a matter of course that this must be arranged. To secure this for his companions as best he could, the presbyter Lucian, lying with his legs wrenched wide apart in the stocks of the prison at Antioch, celebrated the mysteries for the last time, with the elements resting on his own breast, and passed their last communion to the others lying equally helpless in the dark. To secure this, a whole congregation took the risk of almost certain detection 
by assembling at the height of the, of the persecution in their own town, where the authorities were on the watch for them, because as they said in court, the Eucharist had been lacking a long while while the apostasy, because of the apostasy of their bishop, and they could no longer bear the lack of it. And so they called on an elder to celebrate and paid the penalty of their faith to a man. They were killed because they took communion in prison. Scores of similar illustrations could be given. During these years, the nature of the Eucharist was homely and unemotional to a degree, one writer says, and one came to it not to learn something or to seek a psychological thrill, but simply to do something which they conceived they had an overwhelming personal duty to do, come what might. One author writes and says, it is not difficult to affirm the central part played by the celebration of the Eucharist in the pre-Nicene church before Christianity was legalized, especially when one considers a persecuted church meeting secretly before dawn to observe what was often an illegal rite. The people who came week by week to celebrate the Eucharist under such trying conditions were not coming as religious consumers who were hoping to be moved by a, quote, nice service. They were coming as participants in God's drama of salvation. So tell me, would you risk your life to partake of the Lord's Supper? And before you answer that, what excuses do you give now for not doing it? And suppose you were threatened by the authorities with imprisonment or death. Lest I forget Gethsemane, lest I forget thine agony, lest I forget thy love for me, lead me to Calvary. In the centuries following The Council of Nicaea, the church came to struggle not with persecution, but with acceptance, moving in status from an illegal church to the state church. Constantine gave them in the fourth century relief from persecution, but also acceptance and ultimately power. Private secret assemblies moved to public ones. The assembly began to be known as the mass from the dismissal or sending out of the people at the end of the service, the worship assembly came to be less the act of the people and more the act of the priest. And there was increased pomp and ceremony. The horizontal aspect, the communion aspect, was beginning to be lost as the assembly was developing from a corporate celebration to a time of devotion for the individual worshiper. And that trend would continue in the centuries that followed. And so we come to the second stage, the Middle Ages, from A.D. 500 to 1500. John Mark Hicks calls this going from table to altar, the time when it was a shared experience as a meal to the time when it was a mysterious uh, experience. Uh, It is marked as the dissolution of the worshiping uh, community. And the low mass is developed, emphasizing the mystery of the Lord's Supper, in which the priest said and did everything himself, and in a language the people didn't understand, Latin. (laughs) And after a while, the church decided that only the priest takes the wine, and the people only get the bread. The doctrine of transubstantiation, again adding to the mystery where they actually become the body of Christ and and the blood of Christ, further alienated the people. 
Around AD 1000, the Western Roman Church and the Eastern Greek Churches split over several issues, not the least of which was whether the bread should be leavened or unleavened. It was during these centuries in the Middle Ages and the church's emphasis on the mystery of the Mass, according to history, that a small wafer of unleavened bread began to be used in the Western Roman Church. And the Eastern Church thought they were Judaizers and called them that. And those who are descendants of those churches still use either leavened or unleavened bread today. Certainly, the worshiping community was challenged during these days, and the communion aspect of the Lord's Supper had been taken away. But the interesting thing to me about these centuries is that they still came, and they still partook. Even though much of the meaning, much of the experience had been taken away from them, they still did it. The last section today is from the Reformation to today, A.D. 1500 to 2022, interestingly enough. And a significant event occurred in 1440. Do you know what that was? Gutenberg's printing press. And it changed everything. All of a sudden now there's an emphasis on the written and spoken word. And the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century in the 1500s certainly reflected that. Typically, the Reformers rejected the Mass, rejected transubstantiation, rejected the power of the priesthood for the priesthood of believers, and brought the primacy of teaching and preaching to the corporate assembly. Interestingly enough, most of the Reformers felt like the Lord's Supper was the centerpiece of the service and wanted it on a weekly basis. Luther thought that. Calvin thought that. uh, John and Thomas Wesley thought that. The one exception is Holdreich Zwingli, and it was that desire to emphasize the spoken word that caused the churches that come from that ancestry to partake of the Lord's Supper more on a quarterly basis than a weekly basis. Though they felt differently, the churches that came after them did not. And so that influence extended through the English Puritans to the Baptists, Presbyterians, Congregationalists, and Independents, and spread through them to, through most of American Protestant Christianity even today. That's why we're an anomaly, as one Methodist writer calls us, having the Lord's Supper every week. Well, during the Age of Enlightenment from the late 1600s through the mid-1800s, that's when the Restoration Movement and and churches of Christ came around. And Methodist scholar William Williman in one book, Word, Water, Wine, and Bread, notes that the disciples of Christ, that's our group, or the Stone Campbell movement in the 1800s, was one of the most interesting of a number of new Protestant groups born during that time and gives an interesting observation from a historian outside our movement. This is from a Methodist scholar He says, in an age of bitter disputes among factions within American Protestantism, the disciples decided that such divisions are due to human opinions, which have been added to the simple basic Christian requirements. They resolved to avoid all that the scriptures avoid. Their biblical emphasis did lead them to recognize the centrality of the Lord's Supper for Christian worship. Disciples, therefore, recovered celebrations of the Lord's Supper weekly an anomaly in a time when whatever influence which the Lord's Supper had among American free church Protestants was lessening. And even though our restoration movement emphasized the Lord's Supper, we still 
came to see the sermon as the high point um, and emphasized it more than others. Even when we took emphasis on the Lord's Supper, it wasn't the real true meaning. But there were lesser issues such as, can you dim the lights? Can you sing while you're partaking? That was our focus. And of course, our church is divided over whether you could win, use one cup or several. One writer writes and describing himself as a one cupper and tells the story of a church where they tried to do that and separate it into one cup. And, uh, and yet it ended up being one row and finally one side versus the other side. Why? Because the men chewed tobacco and dipped snuff. <laughs> And so they had to separate that. And he tells the story of a couple coming to church with them and the husband and wife sat together. And the rest of the congregation couldn't believe that this couple did not know that men and women simply don't sit together in church. (laughs) And that was why. Well, in spite of all the difficulties of um, of the last decade or so, still that Lord's Supper is significant, absolutely critical and important. And we try to capture that connection, even with pre-sealed communion cups. Still, we are one body with many members, and still the Lord's Supper is the church's family meal. Well, as we conclude today, this survey of the rich historical background of the Lord's Supper leads to a few conclusions, and much more could be said, of course. The ancient church gives us the example of devotion and commitment to participating in the Lord's Supper despite great personal risk and cost. The church of the Middle Ages is filled with people of faith who, in spite of much of the blessing of the Eucharist being taken away from them, still sought to partake each week of the Lord's Supper The Church of the Reformation and Restoration years and the decades and centuries since call us to go back to the Bible to find that great significance Scripture gives to the Lord's Supper and make it the center of not only our worship service, but of our very lives as well. So a few things as we close. First of all, in considering the Lord's Supper in this historical study, we recognize its importance Partaking is absolutely essential. That's what we see throughout the centuries of 2,000 years. Even for those who were not allowed to actively partake and fully participate, even for those who risked their lives, still partaking is absolutely essential. Why? Because it was important. How important is it to you? Secondly, it's experience. It's something we do. Eating and drinking is some of the most basic things we do as humans. And the Lord's Supper does that. But it does that in a very unique, a very special, a very focused way. Remembering the broken body and the shed blood of the Lord. It is something we do. Jesus said this, do in remembrance of me. And then thirdly, it's unifying purpose. It is the church's family meal. We are united in our sinfulness. We are united in our only hope of salvation, Jesus Christ. And we are united as we gather around the table, even in a symbolic sense, and partake of the church's family meal, the Lord's Supper. 
The Lord's Supper calls us back to acknowledge the truth of the gospel. What can bring forgiveness and salvation? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This morning, if you need to come to that one that we remember, that people of faith have remembered for 2,000 years, in a special way each Sunday, come as we stand, sing our song together.